morning, everybody. How are we all doing? Good. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, um, you can use the Pew Bible in front of you. We're going to be on page 1089 this morning. Uh, as typical, we will be doing some Q&R at the end of the message today. So if you have questions, uh, you can go to slido.com and type in RevCDA in the prompt and ask your questions. Uh, you can either put your name on those or you can do it anonymously if you'd prefer. Um, yeah, as we, as we turn to the book of Revelation, let me pray for us. Lord God, I'm, I'm struck by uh, the words of um, just the opening of this book that Cassie read. Um, the blessing that you promised to her for reading. The blessing you promised to us for hearing and for all of us for obeying. And there's something uh, special about that in this book, but that is a universal, I think, in your word, that we, as as we come to you, as we seek your face, as we say, Lord Jesus, we want to be like you. Help us by your grace. God, that you are excited to answer those prayers. You challenge us to lean into you for our lives. Uh, and there are so many other voices in our world that are vying for our attention they want a piece of our mind. They want to um, take up space in our heads. They cause us to worry. They make us feel ashamed. And God, I just pray that, that this morning and then every morning you would just help us to, to turn back to you, to look to you, Jesus, to seek your face, to be people to open your word, that hear it and by your spirit live by it. I pray that you would do a work in our hearts through it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So, when we planted Revelation Church, we, I would often uh, have conversations with people and tell them what I was doing or, or what I did for a living. And, and they would say, what's the name of your church? And I would say, Revelation Church. And they would say, oh, do you just study prophecy all the time? And I went, no. But now I can say yes. Because <laughs> we're going to start the book of Revelation this morning. We're going to be in this book probably till October of this year. It's a fairly long book. Uh, this morning, we, we're going to take a look at a little bit at the first five verses, but we're not actually going to start the book in earnest for three weeks. We're going to do three weeks of introduction. I had seven weeks planned. I decided not to do that. Uh, but there's a lot here that requires a little background. Martin Luther said, my spirit cannot accommodate itself to this book. For me, this is reason enough not to think highly of it. Christ is neither taught nor known in it. Later on, he changed his mind about this. 
Uh, but Thomas Jefferson said, it is between 50 and 60 years since I read it, and I then considered it merely the ravings of a maniac, no more worthy nor capable of explanation than the incoherence of our own nightly dreams. Philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche said, Revelation is the most rapid outburst of vindictiveness in all recorded history. Playwright George Bernard Shaw of the last century said, Revelation is the curious records of the visions of a drug addict. And eminent theologian, Transformers actress Megan Fox says, I've read the book of Revelation a million times. It does not make sense, obviously. <laughs> so why are we studying this book? I've got three reasons. There's probably more. The first one is, maybe, maybe it's an easy one. It's in the Bible. We are people who, who believe that this is God's word, that trust the scriptures. This by itself makes Revelation important. I think many, many people ignore Revelation because it feels a little scary, but it's, it's in here unless you tore it out. Secondly, um, it's really interesting. Some of you here have studied Revelation a lot. I grew up in a church tradition that was frequently going over this section of scripture. It's fascinating to read. Others of you maybe have, have shied away from it. Maybe it's confusing or scary, hard to understand. I've talked with many of you as, as we've been planning this series. We've said, I'm really excited for Revelation. I have no idea what it's about. That makes two of us. But it's an interesting book. And then number three, and then maybe this is the most important for us, is that this is a book about Jesus. If we want to be people that are being transformed into the image of Jesus, if we see Jesus as captivating our imaginations, then this is a book that centers on Christ. Michael Gorman says, if anyone asks why read the apocalypse, the unhesitating answer must be to know Christ better. But why are we studying this book right now? It's been on my mind for us to be here for about a year now. And just straight out of the gate, 2024 is a presidential election year. I don't know if you knew that. As this year progresses, conversations about governmental policy, individual candidates for office, and even what it means to be an American are going to get louder and louder and louder. And more than ever in this country, these conversations will divide us. And to our shame, as Christians, these conversations will divide churches. They will divide families, friends, communities. I don't know if you've experienced this. I experience this a lot. I'm told sometimes that, that there, are, there are churches that feel more like political rallies than worship gatherings, on the one hand. And then I hear from other people that, that somehow we are deficient as a community because we aren't doing voter registration drives in our congregation. There's a lot of thoughts surrounding how the church should interact with politics. Many, many Christians over the last several years have chosen to become part of a community 
based on the American political party that is promoted from the platform there. This has actually become a, a church growth strategy. I was in a, in a group last week and they were talking about how, how you can just pick a side and go hard on that side and, and people will show up. And in this period in our history, the church is just as divided as the rest of the culture is. And I'm afraid that this may be more division than we've experienced since near the time of the Civil War. Commentator David French says, it's time for Americans to wake up to a fundamental reality. The continued unity of the United States of America cannot be guaranteed. We cannot simply presume our nat national unity will last. Now, I don't know if that's hyperbolic or not, but if it's true, it's heartbreaking. I can't imagine how such a, a radical future would play out for this country. But what I do know is that the church of Jesus Christ shouldn't be a part of it. We should be a people that are united around something different. And I would say that we are a political people. Politics is the work of the city. If you've noticed, many, many of the things we talk about when we talk about politics are things that have to do with people and life. There's important decisions to be made, but in contrast to what our country gives us, we are people that belong to a different kingdom. And this is why we have chosen to study the book of Revelation this year. In chapter 11, verse 15, we read, The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. The book of Revelation is about the kingdom and politics of Jesus. It's about how his people order their lives in the middle of a corrupt government that is described as a beast. It's about how different the priorities of the saints are from the priorities of the world. And its wisdom speaks to us today about how to live lives of worship and witness against the forces of evil. Eugene Peterson says, the gospel of Jesus Christ is more political than anyone imagines, but in a way that no one guesses. So throughout the next few months, we will be talking about horsemen and trumpets and stars falling from heaven, and it will be confusing and strange. But over and over again, we will be drawn back to the worthy lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And the men and women who conquered the dragon by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they did not love their lives to the point of death. So this today is the first of three weeks of introduction, like I said. We're going to be taking a look this morning at the question of genre. If you're unfamiliar with the word genre, it's, it's the idea of what kind of writing is this? What are we reading here? This is an important question for reading anything, but especially the Bible. The type of literature that you have in front of you plays a big role into how you're supposed to understand it. In the scriptures, we have poetry and narrative and law and proverbs and prophecy and parables and letters. And all these types of literature have different rules for understanding them. Psalm 22.6 says, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by people. 
Are we meant here to envision a, a six-inch invertebrate wrapped around a quill pen writing that psalm? No, that's not the point. It's a metaphor, right? David is saying something true, and he's also saying something untrue. He's creating a word picture that's speaking more deeply than, I just feel like no one cares for me. The genre of Psalm 22 is poetry, and, and we are clued into the fact that David is using figurative language to get his point across more forcefully. But what about Luke 9? Late in the day, the 12 approached and said to him, send the crowd away so that they can go into the surrounding villages and countrysides to find food and lodging because we are in a deserted place. You give them something to eat, he told them. We have no more loaves than five loaves and two fish, they said, unless we go and buy food for all these people, for about 5,000 men were there. Then he told his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. They did what he said, and he had them all sit down. And he took the five loaves and the two fish and looked up to heaven. He blessed and broke them. And he kept giving them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And everyone ate and was filled. They picked up 12 baskets of leftover pieces. When we read that story in Luke, are we, are we meant to understand something figurative, create some kind of spiritual lesson from what Luke is writing? The 12 uh, apostles, maybe that represents the church. The 5,000 is the number of years from Adam to Christ, maybe. Groups of 50 represent the stars on the American flag. I don't know. No, that's not how that works, right? We, we know that's, that's not what Luke is doing. Based on the way he writes and his opening lines about his objectives, Luke is writing is as straightforward a way as he can the real-life story of the ministry of Jesus on earth. Because ancient biography is a genre and Luke is using it. And so when we approach the scriptures, when we look at a book of the Bible, we have to ask the question, what kind of literature is this? What is it doing? What is its genre? And so when we get to Revelation and we ask that question, the book actually tells us, and it tells us that it has three genres. And for the rest of our time this morning, we're going to go take a look at all three of the genres of the book of Revelation, and we read about them in the first five verses of the book. Cassie already read it, but I'll read it again. The revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show his servants what soon must take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testified to the word of God and the testimony of Christ Jesus, whatever he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in Asia, grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Christ Jesus, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So we see... Revelation give us three genres in those opening verses. The first one is in the word revelation. The word revelation is the word apocalypsis in Greek, and it's where we get the word apocalypse. And when we think of apocalypse, we think of the end of the world, right? The zombie apocalypse or the alien apocalypse or uh, the nuclear apocalypse, whatever. But the reason we think of apocalypse as the end of the world is because of the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is about the end of the world. But the word apocalypse, the word revelation, means unveiling. Think about those, um, those events in Detroit where they're, they're showing off the brand new car of the year. And you see this giant sheet that's just vaguely car-shaped. And then somebody pulls off the sheet to, to uh, unveil the new sedan. 
This is what an apocalypse is. It's an unveiling. And Revelation is apocalyptic literature. That's the first genre that we're going to talk about this morning. But we also read in the first five verses that the one who reads the word of this prophecy out loud is blessed. The Revelation is also a prophecy. And it's specifically a prophecy in the sense that it is a word from God about the future. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. But then as we keep reading in these first five verses, we read John to the seven churches in Asia. Because see, Revelation is also a letter. John really wrote to seven actual first century churches what we're going to read. Revelation is an apocalypse, it's a prophecy, and it's a letter. So what are these three genres? Apocalypse, we're going to spend most of our time on apocalypse because it's the weirdest John Collins says, Apocalypse is a genre of revelatory literature with a narrative framework in which a revelation is mediated by an otherworldly being to a human recipient, disclosing a transcendent reality, which is both temporal insofar as it envisions eschatological salvation and spatial insofar as it involves another supernatural world. Those are a lot of big words. Basically, what Collins is saying is, An apocalypse is a form of writing where an angel shows up and tells someone what's going to happen in the future by transporting them by a visionary experience to a place and showing that to them. It usually takes place in heaven. And the book of Revelation isn't the only book like this. In our Old Testament, the books of Ezekiel and Daniel are apocalypses. If you've read them, you will will notice that, that angels show up The prophets are transported to other realms. They see visions. Outside of our Bibles, the book of 1st Enoch, which was written shortly before the time of Jesus, and 4th Ezra are also apocalypses. The early Christian work, The Shepherd of Hermas, is an apocalypse. This is an established way of writing and communicating in the ancient world. Just to give you a couple uh, other flavors of apocalypse, First Enoch 14 says, The vision was shown to me thus, behold, in the vision clouds invited me, and a mist summoned me, and the course of the stars and the lightning sped and hastened me, and the winds and the vision caused me to fly and, uplifted, and lifted me upward and bore me into heaven, and I went in till I drew nigh to a wall which is built of crystals and surrounded by tongues of fire, and it began to affright me, and I went into the tongues of fire and drew nigh to a large house which was built of crystals, and the walls of the house were like a tessellated floor made of crystals. If you're not familiar with First Enoch, it's weird. Don't worry about it. But can you sense the kind of, the way it's being written? There's this this person, and they're sent into heaven, and they're given this vision. The Shepherd of Hermas, which is a really interesting book as well, uh, he writes, On her ceasing to speak to me, those six young men who were engaged in building came and conveyed her to the tower. And other four lifted up the seed and carried it also to the tower. And the faces of these last I did not see, for they were turned away from me. And as she was going, I asked her to reveal to me the meanings of these three forms in which she had appeared to me. And she said to me, with regard to them, you must ask another to reveal their meaning to you. Again, Hermes is a long book with a lot going on, but he's been transported to this other world. And there's there's woman here who's trying to explain things to him. This is what the genre of apocalypse is like. 
Brian Tabb says, apocalypses encourage and comfort believers during severe trials or following disaster, and they challenge readers to adopt a new perspective on reality in the light of coming judgment and to live accordingly. One of the main characteristics of apocalyptic writing is its use of symbolic language. In verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. The word made it known is a word that means to signify or indicate, and it's used in the book of Daniel to talk about the dream that's given to Nebuchadnezzar. If you remember the story, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream of this giant statue, and Daniel says, this is what God has given you to make known what's happening in the future. This is a word that communicates symbolic language. And in the book of Revelation, Jesus is unveiling himself by communicating to John through symbols. G.K. Beale writes, a number of authors of both popular and scholarly commentaries contend that one should interpret literally except where one is forced to interpret symbolically by clear indications of context. But the results of the analysis of chapter 1 verse 1 indicate that this should be turned on its head. We are told in the book's introduction that the majority of the material in in it is revelatory symbolism, hence the predominant manner by which to approach the material will be according to a non-literal interpretive method. What Beale is saying is that the book tells us at the very beginning that most of what we're going to be reading is symbolic, that it's going to need interpretation, that it is intended to be figurative. And when you're in a conservative, Bible-believing church like we are, that makes you feel a little uncomfortable. Because there's a tradition in the 20th century where there is a group of uh, scholars and and theologians who, who wanted to say, you know, the Bible isn't literal, it's figurative. And they wanted to take the resurrection of Jesus and make it figurative. And they wanted to take the virgin birth and make it figurative. And they wanted to say, like, none of that really matters. And there was this huge controversy in the early 20th century about this. And a group of churches came out the other way that said, no, I think the Bible is true. I think it's literally true. When it says that Jesus rises from the dead, I think that really happened. I think Jesus really was born of a virgin. I think he really died on the cross and paid for our sins and that the reality of these things matter. And we need to hold on to that. So then we we start talking about like, oh, but but these other things, they're not literal. And that kind of sets off some red flags for a lot of us. But the thing we have to understand is that because something is not literal does not make it false. Just because it's figurative doesn't make it untrue. The symbols we're going to read about in this book are symbolic of something real and deeply important. And in another way, we're we're really familiar with this. When we read Jesus' parables, for instance, we read that a sower went out to sow some seed. And we don't go like, what was his name? Or, what kind of seed was it? Where was the path? Like, what kind of birds came? That that doesn't matter, because Jesus is telling a parable. It's not intended to be taken literally, but it is intended to be taken truly. And so, when we go through this book, we're going to see over and over and over again these 
crazy symbols, and we're going to have to work through what they're supposed to mean. But this isn't foreign to us either in our own culture. We talked about politics, so let's talk a little bit more about politics. I've got some cartoons for us. Here's a cartoon. We have um, this little boy who's, who's having his uh, lemonade stand earnings taken by a donkey and an elephant. What, who is the donkey? Anybody? The Democrats. Who's the elephant? The Republicans. Why do we know this? <laughs> this is just part of our common cultural symbolism, right? Here's another one. This is an older one. This is from, I think, the late 1800s. No, this is from Prohibition. We got, we got donkeys and elephants sharing a bed together. And the argument is that, that prohibition, whether you're for or against it, works across party lines. But again, this symbolism goes back 100 years. We know who the donkey is. We know who the elephant is. I'll give you one more. This is a Dr. Seuss cartoon from World War II. Who's the guy with the bow? Yeah, it's Uncle Sam, right? And everybody knows that that's America. And this is the kind of framework that we're going to have to start thinking about as we work through the book of Revelation. John is going to give us symbol after symbol after symbol, and he's going to draw them from the Old Testament. And it's going to be up to us as we work through it to go, oh, I know what he's communicating when he uses that symbol. Michael Gorman again says, symbolic language is evocative and expressive, yet this symbolism points to actual, though transcendent, realities. John is going to use dozens of symbols throughout the book. Colors like white, red, purple, black, pale. Numbers like a third or a half or three or three and a half, four, six, seven, twelve, a thousand. Lampstands, beasts, heads, horns, crowns, eyes, seals, trumpets, bowls. Over and over and over again, we're going to be bombarded with these colorful symbols that John is using to communicate transcendent truth. J. Michael Ram or J. Ramsey Michael says, These visions are by no means a picture of the social world in which John actually lived, but rather a prolonged, piercing glance through that world to the cosmic struggle between good and evil taking place just behind or beyond it. John's not looking out into his space and seeing these things. He's, been, he's being given visions of symbols, and he's writing them down. So the book of Revelation is an apocalypse. It's an unveiling using primarily symbolic imagery. But it's also a prophecy. We won't take as much time on this one. But verse 3 says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it because the time is near. John says this is a prophecy. It is a word from God to his people. The church that, that listens to it is given a blessing. The reader who reads it is given a blessing. But it's also something that we are supposed to keep. It's a special book that we're to pay attention to. When we think of prophecy, we usually think about telling the future. It's kind of in our common language. The prophetic is, this is going to happen tomorrow or next week or next year. 
And that's often what prophecy is doing in the Bible. But prophecy is primarily a word from the Lord. Many of the Old Testament prophets, if you read their language, they're not always talking about the future. They're talking about the present. And they're speaking into that situation with the words of God. John tells us that we are blessed if we keep what is written in this book. So one thing we need to remember is that if if the study of the book of Revelation for us is just like sitting down with a bowl of popcorn and watching what's going to happen someday in the future, we're missing it. The prophecy of the book of Revelation is that it is speaking to us. And John says that we are blessed if we keep it. We are meant to obey this book, to do it. We aren't spectators looking into the future. We are participants in what's going on. Now, this doesn't mean that this prophecy isn't about the future. I think it is. And as we go through the book, we'll talk about some of that. But it's not for our entertainment. It's for our obedience. Thirdly, the book of Revelation is a letter. Now, if you read the rest of the New Testament, you are familiar with this genre. There are 21 letters in the New Testament. In verse 4, we read, John, to the seven churches in Asia, grace and peace to you from the one who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Who is writing this letter? John. Who is this letter written to? The seven churches. Actual communities of Jesus followers that lived in what we would call Turkey in the first century. Real people. So think about the New Testament letters. I've got some examples here. Philippians 4. So then, my dearly beloved and longed for brothers and sisters, this is Paul speaking, my crown and joy in this matter, stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. So question, Paul's writing the Philippians, and he calls out two women, that's a bummer. <laughs> I mean, maybe, maybe not. Maybe it's, Paul cares about these women so much that he calls them out in person. Maybe that's a better way to look at that. Are these real people? Yes. Are they really having some conflict? Yes. We're not meant to read Philippians and go, you know, sometime far in the future, there's going to be two people that have... No, there's this group of people in Philippi that are having problems right now. 1 Thessalonians 4, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. Who does Paul not want to be informed? Uninformed. The Thessalonians, the group of people that are getting the letter. Philemon, verse 22, Paul says, he's in prison. He says, meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, since I hope that through your prayers I will be restored to you. He's talking to Philemon about staying at his house, right? And, and I'm, I'm belaboring this because it's so simple, we will miss it. When we read a letter, we assume that there are real people involved and the situation in the present is going on. 
If a letter is not understood by its recipients, then the author hasn't done his job. If you write a letter and somebody gets it and goes, I have no idea what this means, then communication hasn't happened very well, has it? So as we read Revelation and understand that it is a real letter to seven real churches, we have to remember that it needs to make sense, at least on some level, to those people. If we come to this book and think the only way to understand Revelation is to be someone living in the 21st century, we've missed it. It has to be intelligible, at least in some way, to these people in these churches. Some might say that the letters in chapter 2 and 3, those are for the church in the first century, and then the rest of the book, that principle doesn't apply. But that doesn't work, because in chapter 22, we read, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to attest these things to you for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. So at the very end of Revelation, Jesus says, this whole book was meant for you, seven churches. So we need to remember, as we read Revelation, that they are the primary audience. Now, the Word of God is is timeless. That's one of the wonderful things about it, and we can read it, and we can understand it and grow from it, but it has to matter, and it has to mean something to the people at Ephesus and Thyatira and Laodicea. So, to wrap up, Revelation is an apocalypse, a supernatural sequence of visions filled with strange symbols that need to be interpreted. It's a prophecy telling the future, but also requiring our obedience. And it's a letter meant to bring comfort and hope to actual people in the first century. And we need to keep all of these things in mind as we seek to understand the book. That's as far as we're going to go today. Next week, we're going to talk about John, who he is, what's going on in his life, We're going to talk about these churches, what we can learn about them, and we're going to talk about why John is writing to them. Brian Tabb says, it is a book, Revelation, indeed the final book of Christian scripture meant to decode our reality, capture our imaginations, and master our lives with the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I'm super excited for the next 10 months to walk through this amazing book together in a season of uncertainty in our world. In a season where we're going to be having questions about what's going on around us, about who we can trust, about how we should live. And I'm confident that the Spirit of God is going to work through this book to bless us with comfort and peace in the midst of the chaos around us. Let's do some questions. <laughs> okay. Although this doesn't pertain to today's sermon, that's fine. Don't worry about it. What do you think the biblical answer is for whether baptism is necessary for salvation or not? Um. There are a few places in the scriptures 
Ephesians chapter 4 is one of them that says that there is one baptism. I believe that that baptism is baptism into Christ's body. That baptism is symbolized by the sacrament of water baptism. Water baptism is something that has been mandated from the very beginning of the church as an inaugural event of allegiance to Jesus. When you became a Christian, you got baptized because it was your public statement of your change of life and who you are. Baptism by water doesn't save us. Peter says this in his letter. It's not by washing dirt from our bodies, but our change of conscience. However, if you are not baptized, I'm going to ask why. If you are a follower of Jesus and Jesus has commanded you to be baptized and you haven't been baptized, that's a question mark. What is preventing you from this step of obedience? And if you have more specific questions about that, I would be happy to talk with you. Do you think the book of Revelation is also tied to the destruction of Jerusalem in the years after it was written? Yes. <laughs> we're in a, in two weeks from now, we're going to talk about different frameworks for understanding the book. And there is a, there's a framework called preterism, uh, which holds that most or all... Mo- All is pretty bad. Most of Bible prophecy is focused on what happens to the Jewish temple in the year 70, about 30, 30, 40 years after the work of Jesus. I think there are elements of that view that are important to consider, but I don't think it tells the whole story. And I also want to say there are probably going to be a lot of things in our Q&R going through these weeks where I'm going to go like, hey, hold on. In a couple weeks, we're going to get to that. So that's all I'm going to say about that right now. Okay. Good questions. We're going to take communion this morning. What we're going to find out in the book of Revelation is that we are in attention always of its communicating the already and not yet understanding of God's kingdom. Jesus is already reigning, but his kingdom has not yet fully come. We've been rescued from sin and death, but we are not yet fully out from under its grip. Communion is a reminder of our salvation in a similar way. Jesus has already won for us adoption into his family through his death on the cross and his broken body and his shed blood We have been crucified with him and live by his resurrection power right now, but we are also waiting for the day of our final redemption. And this can be frustrating because we want deliverance right now. There are circumstances in our life. There there are things that are going wrong in our world personally and in the world around us. But communion gives us hope that the life that we have now is actually Christ's life in us, and we have everything we need to navigate the circumstances of our life until our journey is finally completed and his kingdom has come in full. And so I would encourage you, 
If you're a Christian this morning, you're welcome to come take communion with us in a few minutes and to come get the bread and the cup and take it back to your seat and, and just meditate on the reality that we are straddling two different worlds. That we are in this world, we are on a mission from Jesus to make disciples, to be a witnessing community of the goodness of God in this place. But Paul says we're also seated with Christ in the heavenlies. And that both of those things can be true at the same time. And that if you are, especially if this is just a time of pain for you, a time of uncertainty, time of struggle, let that be encouraging to you. That who you are in Christ, you've already completed that work. That, that, um, that race, Jesus sees it as already done and he says he will be faithful to complete it in you. And let that reminder be a comfort to you this morning. You're welcome to sit or stand as we worship. You're welcome to come and kneel on the prayer rugs. Sometimes changing the posture of your body helps you change the posture of your heart. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.